1994, South Africa held its first real democratic elections, with South Africans from all races allowed to vote. With the ANC victory, the racist system of apartheid began to be dismantled. Three years later, in 1997, Farid Essek, an anti-apartheid activist who is too often forgotten, wrote Quran, Liberation and Pluralism, an Islamic perspective of interreligious solidarity against oppression. Reflecting on the Muslim community's history during the anti-apartheid struggle, Essek outlines a vision of Islamic theology that is both intense and intentional about eliminating all forms of injustice. For his dedication to the struggle, Essek was appointed as a gender equity commissioner by Nelson Mandela. He is now a professor at the University of Johannesburg, head of the South African branch of the Boycott, Divest, and Sanctions movement, and is known for his solidarity with the Muslim community living with HIV and AIDS. 25 years after those first democratic elections, I sat down with him to discuss the book, his ideas on interpreting the Quran for the liberation of all, and how oppression shifts over time, constantly demanding new approaches, movements, and questions. I'm Noah Black, and you're listening to the Maidan Podcast. Stick around. So to begin, um, it's been quite a while since the publication of Quran Liberation and Pluralism. And I know you've you said you're working on a number of other projects to kind of outline exactly what you mean when you talk about Islamic liberation theology, or if you use another term, I'm not sure, but have your opinions on the interpretive process or Islam's role in the struggle changed significantly in those years, or no? Um, it sounds... It's not something that I'm proud of. I change. And uh, I wouldn't want to think of myself as uh, trapped in dogma or fossilized thinking uh, and at the same time, I I think that fundamentally I have remained uh, unaltered. Uh, <clears throat> the the basic impulse of Quran liberation and pluralism. And by the way, um, just about a couple of months ago. <clears throat> The book was published in Turkish, uh, and I was really surprised uh, that the book was published in Turkish. It has come out in a number of other languages. It's out in about 10 languages, I think. Um, so, uh, yeah, okay, I can talk about the, the influence of the book uh, later, but more directly in response to your question. No, I don't think that anything fundamentally has changed in my approach to the Qur'an or the fundamental issues that I try to present in that text. I basically use the argument that, uh, that the Qur'an is a living text, 
that it can only be understood in contexts, but that um, this doesn't mean that all contextual readings are uh, equally valid. <clears throat> and I never spoke about an authentic meaning. I always spoke about greater authenticity. And the whole notion that greater authenticity lies with the marginalized, that is still very much at the heart of my theological approaches. So the project to rethink Islam, yes. The project to understand the Quran as a, a living uh, text, yes. <laughs> but um, um, it has a particular uh, resonance um, and a particular legitimacy when it is read from the margins. Um, and at that time, the margins for me, the dominant margins was uh, race and racism and the struggle against uh, apartheid. And the one example of reading the texts was uh, the texts as uh, <clears throat> um, seemingly uh, denouncing all forms of relationships with, uh, with, with Christians and Jews and quote-unquote uh, people who don't believe. Because the Quran, as you know, doesn't have the term disbelievers uh, in it. And so the terrain of how I have applied the marginalized, the terrain has expanded. Uh, <clears throat> I am... I'm very interested in the poor, uh, and I'm curious about how uh, identity politics uh, seem to be um, seem to be marginalizing issues of poverty and the poor, um, and yeah, so so. The areas in where I'm searching for the marginalized uh, may have shifted, um, but the basic uh, message of uh, the text, I think, um, is still very much uh, one that I uh, that I uphold. Um, I've, and I've become more aware of um, <clears throat> of uh, of the same issues at a global level. Um, the question of race, the question of marginalities, um, uh, the question of the power of the global north versus the global south, and then the various global norths inside the global south, you know, um, uh, the different so the questions of privileges and marginalities and how the Quran speaks to it it's still very much at the heart of what I am uh, busy with and I'm still uh, don't know whether I'm an activist masquerading as a scholar or a scholar masquerading as an activist yeah, yeah. so I, I think it's a good question to build off of that kind of 
confusion there is um, in in the book you write that um, some people might denounce this as a post hoc justification, but um, it's actually regarded by liberation theology. You say as both inevitable and a privileged option. So I'm I'm wondering. Um, can you expand on this a little bit? And specifically, is this a matter of, you know, to use a popular phrase, the ends justify the means, or maybe more broadly that the the principles of struggle and solidarity with the marginalized is what the interpretation is based off of? Um, yeah, I mean, look, I deal with this question of whether it is um, uh, an issue, whether it is a matter of reading into the text what you want to read into the text, or whether it is the whole idea that the text speaks to you. And I think I arrive at a position that it's it's not uh, it's not an either or position. Um, it is you in constant conversation in constant um, wrestling uh, with this text. Uh, It's not you, well, um, it's not you uh, demanding answers that uh, is quote-unquote convenient for you. Because uh, when the Quran, for example, says, وَهَدَيْنَاهُ in Surah Aqaba, one of the shorter Meccan surahs, and we have shown you the two paths. And, uh, and, and, um, uh, um, and then um, so the Quran speaks about um, it's a bit of a longish uh, Meccan surah. So then the Quran speaks about the difficult path, and then the Quran speaks about how few are. The, we've shown you the two paths, um, and there are few who choose the difficult path, and then outlines what the difficult path is. So it is fakuraqaba. It is the freeing of necks, the freeing of people from slavery. Uh, or to feed a person on a dark day, um, a, an orphan who may be a part of your family, or any other poor person whose face is rubbed in the dust, you know. Uh, okay, sorry, I, I went back to the beginning. By the way, when it comes to the Quran, then uh, my head goes into Arabic. So it's not a kind of showing off, you know, it is just that I I don't think, when I think content of the Quran, then I can't think in English. I, yeah. I have to go back to the English. Okay. So the Quran speaks about this as a difficult path. And so it's not like, you know, hey, you know, um, I want to do what is convenient. No, no, no. It is the assumption of a difficult task. So on the one hand, I mean, uh, in Hadith literature, uh, 
Bashiru wala tunafiru, yassiru wala tu'assiru, give glad tidings and don't disperse people, yassiru, make things easy for people and don't make things difficult for people. <coughs> but <coughs> the truth is that uh, these are the tidings that we are supposed to give. But being a Muslim is not an easy task. Um, <clears throat> it's, uh, and this is where I part company from people who say that, um, wait, I'm not sticking to your question. I'm aware of that. Okay, I still have your question. But this is where I part company from people who say that Islam is an entirely unproblematic religion. Islam is just about love and kindness and embracing everybody and, and, and. No. The Qur'an also warns, you know, this is a God who promises one thing to the one crowd, but also promises the destruction of the one crowd. You know, uh, in Surah Qasas, uh, uh, the liberation of Bani Israel is premised on the destruction of Fir'aun. So <clears throat> it may not sound nice in the post-9-11 period, but the Qur'an has... There is, you know, Ya ayyuhal nabiyyu harridil mu'minin al-qital. O Prophet, spur the believers on to battle. Um, now, what are we fighting for? Yeah, we part company with many of our other people who use the same kind of rhetoric. So I don't think it is an instrumentalist or a utilitarian thing. And this is why, I mean, one of the, the first hermeneutical keys that I uh, write about, it is the question of taqwa. It's not me and just my intellectual self. It's just not me and uh, I'm, a, I'm a thinker. Uh, these are the tools that I come to with the texts, and I'm now going to interrogate the texts, and I know it is also a trembling believer that approaches the text. It's a trembling believer. It's a believer that, um, that uh, is in awe of this text. Um, <clears throat> but it's, it's a believer that, that wrestles at the same time. So I don't know. I mean, now, it's, this is a very personalist, apparently, a very personalist kind of approach, you know, we say, no, uh, I'm a God-fearing believer. That's not what I'm trying to suggest. I'm only trying to say that it's a package deal. It's not um, just a thinker that is anchored to his or her books and his or her theories and now coming in this uh, Anna, Anna, you know, me, me. And I'm now coming to the text. It's a trembling relationship. And so, and I don't know, but for me, this element of eurism, of trial and error, of I'm not sure, um, it, is, it is the believer's safeguard against elevating him or her above, um, above God and say, I want God to say this. I want God to say that. And at the same time, I'm willing to concede that there is an element of construction in here. 
Am I constructing a God that is on the side of the marginalized? Um, I think partly there may be construction in it because I am not able to live with the idea of a God that, uh, that is on the side of the powerful. Is my idea sustained by the Qur'an? Yes. Uh, are there parts of the Qur'an that I still find troubling? Uh, yes. When the Qur'an, for example, says, تُعِزُّ مَنْ تَشَى وَتُذِلُّ مَنْ تَشَى That God honors who he wants to and he disgraces whom he wants to. What is meant by this? Uh, this becomes a license for the pharaohs and the sultans, and God has elevated us. So the next, the things, you know, in Sunni theology, um, you have a sultan fil ard, that the sultan is the shadow of God on earth. Oh, so now you use the same text, you know, God has honored who he wants to, and he has disgraced whom he wants. So are there issues? Yes, there are constantly issues. And I'm happy to embrace these issues and live alongside them. But I think a combination of this trial and error, a combination of courage to challenge the text, uh, a humility in who you are and your own frailty as a human being um, and as a believer, um, I think that, and that is why I presented these hermeneutical keys not as a stand-alone thing, because if it's a stand-alone thing, then say jihad as a key. Jihad is just becomes your own personal arrogant weapon against all the people whom you dislike, um, because there is no taqwa involved, there is no trembling in front of God. Um, <clears throat> there is no praxis, you know, so it just becomes uh, a slogan that you're going to use to wipe out uh, everybody that you don't agree with. So, yeah, I, I do think that, um, you know, um, of course, in some ways, you know, you're not asking me about a personal question, <laughs> but uh, something that I would suggest that you have a look at, uh, the second thing that I'm suggesting that you have a look at, there is one uh, dua in the Shi'i tradition. It is known as uh, the dua al-Kumayl. <clears throat> and uh, Imam Ali is uh, supposed to have taught this to one of the companions who was known as uh, Kumayl. And it's a fascinating, it's a bit of a longish prayer. It lasts about... 30 minutes. Uh, I use it uh, to go to bed with uh, sometimes, and I I read it every uh, Thursday. I make a point. I'm very devoted to read it. It's like you know, part of my... And the one fascinating thing about that text, it's just a long, intense wrestling between you and God, between the believer and God. And so in some ways, <clears throat> this wrestling with the text um, is it's 
it's, it's a wrestling. It's an engaged believer, an engaged lover that uh, derives meaning and inspiration from this text, but also finds the texts from time to time infuriating, like you can find your mother infuriating, uh, like you can find your elder brother that you love so much infuriating, but it's a part of your relationship of love. There's a lot to think about there. But one of the things that I did really appreciate about the text was I'm not sure if it would be misreading it to say that a lot of the hermeneutical keys were built on taqwa, but I found it really interesting that you were, it seemed like you were using taqwa. Um, as a kind of uh, an insurance of accountability both to the texts and to to the people living on the margins. Yeah. Yes. It's not a question, but... <laughs> but it's... You know, I have seen this, and I wrote it. Uh, there was a larger context wherein this became very important for me. Quran liberation appeared in what year? 97? Yeah, the year I was oh, born. 97, yes. And in 94, South Africa had become a democracy. And in that short period, I saw the transformation of activists. And I saw the loss of a revolutionary ethos and a commitment to simplicity and to uh, avoiding pomp and avoiding ostentation. And, and I saw a departure towards material uh, values. Um, <clears throat> and so I often thought, you know, what is it that makes today's revolutionary, tomorrow's oppressor. And the only insurance against your own arrogance and your own transformation into that evil, which once upon a time you abhorred, the only insurance against that is a feeling of utter accountability to a transcendent beyond you and beyond the material. Um, <clears throat> by the way, we had elections in South Africa a few days ago. Um, I don't know if you can see my finger. Um, there's a mark on my nail. Uh, that is my election, uh, the paint that they put, the ink that they put on your thumb uh, when you go and vote. <coughs> um, so, I mean, I, yeah, I still support the African National Congress as I did then. Um, but even inside the ANC, around me, um, I've seen how people who espoused all these values of simplicity and, um, <clears throat> you know, how we have abandoned it. And so taqwa isn't, wasn't only for me, it was also a protection 
I could see this uh, coming on uh, at that time. And I mean, it has come on. Many people will say that we have really lost the battle. Um, but it was, um, yeah, both a question of scholarly and revolutionary arrogance. Uh, we now, you know, first you speak in the name of the people, and then the next moment you are the people. It's pretty much what our other friends are doing. We speak in the name of God, and the next moment we are God, you know. So we kill in the name of God. We, yeah. But yeah, you that was just a side question for you. Um, okay, so th this was something that that struck me across several different texts that I was reading, um, not just yours, but also that of uh, Hamid uh, Hamid Dabashi. Hamid Dabashi, yeah, yes. and um, and Askar Ali, engineer, but. Um, so if the process and struggle for liberation is something that's continual, and I'm not sure that um, you think it is, like, that's part of the question, um, what, what does that liberation look like? Um, something that struck me about Debashi's work is that it didn't actually seem like there was a definable goal. It seemed more as if he was characterizing liberation as a condition of always being within a certain interpretive paradigm rather than describing certain material conditions. Yes. <clears throat> yes. Um, okay. Uh, just incidentally, uh, Dabashi had never read my book. Uh, um, and uh, his wife had to remind him who I was. Uh, after his book came out, and um, two, three reviews pointed out that, hey, you know, this guy doesn't mention or hasn't referred to Farid Esak. And, uh, I mean, yeah, we get on well with each other. <clears throat> I mean, we've had chats about it and so on. And I have a lot of respect for the guy's positions. I think I'm cautious about utopianism, about promising any kind of utopia. Um, I do think uh, liberation theology uh, takes you to um, a more liberative um, understanding of the text. But I also believe that uh, as our own, I, I mean, I, I think this is the hermeneutical circle, as our understanding of the text of of the conditions around us and the text and this engagement, we become aware of other marginalities all the time. We develop a deeper awareness of marginalities. And, um, and so you never, it's like in our non-racial uh, democracy, um, <clears throat> then the question of poverty became more stark. The question of gender justice became more stark. The question of uh, sexual orientation became more stark. And uh, now, I mean, if you just look at social media, for example, um, <clears throat> for a long time you thought that your cat was cute or that your dog was clever. 
um, or your budgie or your parrot or your and now we are becoming aware at a mass level of the intelligence of other sentient beings. So <clears throat> you you were indifferent to left-handed people before. And you never thought of the kind of discrimination, the pejorative way in which, uh, especially in, in many uh, Asian societies and in many traditional societies, left-handedness is treated. So now with social media, and now you begin to reflect, you know, on the lives of, of animals, the lives of other sentient beings, and it poses a new challenge for you. So I don't think that that liberation theology ever settles, and I don't think that uh, <clears throat> that we are intended to be settled human beings um, uh, <clears throat> from uh, the accounts of the prophet's life. Uh, the prophet was an unsettled human being until the last days of his life. Uh, <clears throat> now look, I'm I'm not for a moment suggesting kind of permanent pathologies, a permanent, you know, uh, kind of, you know, this guy is just wacky and he now embraces his wackiness or he's, or he's, got, he's got issues. Uh, I do think that all of human beings are always riddled with issues and it's a continuous struggle with all of them. <laughs> But at the same time, I think that uh, we have a responsibility to embrace uh, this uh, this dis-ease with the state of the world. Um, it is a state of injustice, whether we this on the one hand, and on the other hand, um, it's it's just a question of our growing awareness of more dimensions to this injustice. So I don't think that liberation theology promises a state. But I do think, I mean, that if you look at the intersection between liberation theology and uh, the general discourse on decoloniality, um, the one problem that I do have is I agree with the project that um, we don't uh, shape our understanding of the Qur'an in terms of the demands of the powerful. I mean, <clears throat> but we shape it in terms of the demands or the urgencies of, and, and you would probably know that after I worked on Qur'an liberation pluralism uh, in the new democracy, I moved into the field of HIV and AIDS and Muslims living with HIV um, and the stigma that accompanies sexually transmitted diseases. So that was a new marginalized that I became focused on. Um, <clears throat> that I became focused on. Uh, <clears throat> so I don't think that there is ever a point that we say we have arrived. So you can say South Africa was liberated from apartheid and then or uh, slavery ended on a particular day, and then you discover the slavery of the <clears throat> of bonded laborers in many parts of the world, 
you discover the sweatshops, the slavery of the sweatshops, and how uh, oppression reinvents itself uh, and captures your Martin Luther Kings and captures your, um, and then, uh, you know, it just, they remove all the anger and, yeah, so the point that I'm trying to make is this, that no, I do think liberation theology is about the process. It's about the permanent process. Um, there's also this hadith, you know, it's not, <clears throat> it gives me comfort sometimes, but it also discomforts me. Uh, that says, you know, Badal Islam uh, Gariban, that Islam started off in a, in a strange, in a state of dis-ease. Um, and it will return in a state of dis-ease. Um, and then Fatubu lil Huraba, give glad tidings to those who are kind of, who are wacky or who are weird or who are, uh, who are strange. Uh, it's not your excuse to be impolite to everybody that you meet uh, because, you know, this is just... Um, but look, you know, it's a bit of a cliche of mine, um, <clears throat> but I haven't heard ever of a counter to it, that uh, there isn't a single prophet uh, in any tradition, whether it is in the Buddhist tradition or in the Quranic tradition or in the Hebrew Bible tradition, whose fundamental question was, how do I fit in with the dominant uh, powers in society or with the dominant norms of society? Not a single prophet had this. And so this uh, liberal Muslim or moderate Muslim project, that the major task of Muslims is to become invisible and to fit in um, without interrogating who, where. Oh, fit in with America. Whose image of America? Um, is it uh, the United States of uh, the decayed urban, inner urban parts of the cities, the United States of uh, incarcerated people for 30, 40 years, or is it uh, the iftar dinners at the White House uh, that I don't even think Trump is having this year easy? You don't I've, know. I've not heard anything, no. You're not interested enough to get invited? Uh, you should uh, up your game a bit, man. I mean, you are in Washington, D.C. after all. But I think you know the point that I'm trying to make, huh? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, so moving in a little bit of a different direction. Yes. Um, earlier in the conversation, you talked about... Um, Exodus a little bit, um, and when I was reading uh, Quran of the Oppressed by Rahmatullah, he he criticized your use of Exodus because um, I think he he portrayed it as playing into um, a universalization of Christianity and said that liberation theology in Islam needs to foreground Muslim specificity. And to some degree, I kind of understand the concern of, of countering certain master narratives. I don't recall the critiques. I'm not really able to respond to it. Um, 
I read an earlier version of the chapter on my work, um, that an earlier draft of it, and um, <clears throat> I wasn't, uh, first of all, I'm not a great fan of myself. And I say this uh, not with humility, just as a matter of fact, okay? So, um, and I, I, well, God is my witness. Well, I, I don't mean this in a um, kind of, I, I don't care what people say about me. But I'm genuinely not a fan of myself. Um, and I thought that, uh, I thought that that chapter was a bit too uh, uncritical uh, of, uh, of, my, uh, of my work. Um, and then I'm sure that later on, you know, because you can't be taken seriously as a scholar if you just sing somebody else's praises. So Shadab had to uh, come up with some stuff, and I'm happy that he did, but I don't particularly remember what was the issue that he had with um, with my the question of my use of the Exodus paradigm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so I guess maybe let me reframe it without necessarily using that book um and and this comes a little bit from even the use of the phrase liberation theology um but i guess to what degree um is there a concern about buying into certain universalized european Christian frameworks um, and in the relationship with um, liberation theology in Latin America, is there anything that Islamic liberation theology has to lose in using certain framings or are there things that can be gained from that relationship? Okay, so it's a difficult question that you're asking, okay? Um, Because in some ways you're also asking, so is there nothing unique about Islam? Um, Is there nothing unique about Islam? Is, uh, um, uh, yes, Um, yes and no. No, in the sense that we believe that it is the same God that has spoken to humankind uh, and other beings from the beginning of creation until now. Um, uh, So, no, there isn't. Uh, Is this the path for me, path that I believe is the best path for me and for humankind at the same time, yes. Um, and I don't want to, perhaps I am, I was about to say, I don't want to be facetious or too simplistic about it, but perhaps I am. Um, um, uh, I don't, 
the Quran is a text that speaks to me like no other. But I'm not going to find, uh, uh, I'm not going to berate somebody else if the Quran doesn't resonate with him or her. Um, So am I being reductionist? Am I being relativist in saying that this is good for me, but I'm not prepared to recommend it for anybody else? Um, I don't know. It's an awkward question that I need to think through. And uh, my detractors or people who don't like my ideas, they can easily assail me or attack me on this point. I recognize the vulnerability of my ideas on this point. But, you know, during the liberation struggle, uh, Desmond Tutu was somebody that inspired a lot of people. Then uh, some one of them came to one of our uh, struggle heroes, uh, Imam Hassan. And Imam, you know, uh, you guys, you and Molana Farid, you are so close to Desmond Tutu. Have you guys thought of him converting to Islam and giving him da'wah? So Imam Hassan said, look, you know, Desmond Tutu is straight and upright. If he's going to be more straight than what he is, he's going to be bent. Can you please leave him alone as he is? Um, So in some ways, it's not the Quranic uh, kind of uh, retort to the kuffar of Makkah, lakum deenukum waliyadeen. You have your deen, and I have my deen. You have your faith, and I have my faith. Because that retort doesn't give equality to the, or legitimacy to the kuffar and to their faith. Uh, It was more of a rhetorical kind of, you know, get the hell out of here, you know. I have nothing to do, you know, this is where we part company. Um, But... There is an approach to our faiths that we have in common, um, and they were in some ways the forerunners of the systematizing of this theology that's uh, as it evolved in Latin America and later in uh, the Philippines. They were the forerunners of this, and subsequently you had others uh, writing on Buddhist liberation or Buddhist engaged theology or Mark Ellis uh, writing on Jewish liberation theology and so on. Um, we are all the children of uh, the same parents. And in this sense, um, um, uh, uh, I, I rejoice in this kind of uh, diversity and their strength. I mean, when I I do some work with the World Council of Reformed Churches, with the World Communion of uh, Reformed Churches, and I'm very at home there. <clears throat> I'm very, very at home there. So uh, I don't know. I, yeah, I mean, I need to think a bit more, I mean, about the question. But I am happy with my own uh, uncomfort. 
You know, Noah, um, I don't know, but I, I don't think of Islam as a set of answers. Answers belongs to God. Um, we must kind of uh, measure our questions and come with our challenges and get closer and closer to the truth. But the, the truth is also that the closer and closer we get, the more and more questions we discover. So as, believe, as a believer, I'm happy to embrace my, my questions as much as I embrace the few certainties that I have. Yeah. It's a very challenging and also somewhat satisfactory answer from, yeah, yeah. from a spiritual standpoint. Yeah. Yeah. Um, in my understanding of your interpretive process, the Asbaba Nuzul play in not an insignificant role. And so if I guess my question is, if the events occasioning revelation um, have a significant role to play, but the Hadith uh, literature uh, is needs to be subject to more reevaluation, I guess where, where and when does that reevaluation happen uh, in? in terms of its relationship to uh, Quranic uh, interpretation? Okay. Um, okay. Now, you know, there is this kind of project. I don't know how far it is going to go, uh, but there is this project where people are trying to uh, reassess Hadith uh, not in terms of the chain of narrators, but in terms of the content. And so a hadith will be judged on how uh, valid the ideas in it is, rather than, I, I don't know, I mean, if it is a viable project, because uh, the whole question of um, the viability of an idea, um, that depends on who's doing the compilation, you know, um, it's kind of this new state project of uh, engineering Islam for this society. They engineered Islam, uh, they engineered a jihadist Islam when Afghanistan was occupied by the Soviets. And after that, they engineered a moderate Islam that is at peace uh, in order to fit in with Pax Americana. You know, it's um, so <coughs> that project. Uh, aside, I, I do think that I made extensive use of hadith uh, in trying to figure out the meanings of some of the difficult ayat that I dealt with. And um, <clears throat> I had an interesting piece that came out in the Journal for the International Quranic Studies Association on uh, Nabi Lut's offer of his two daughters. Uh, when the gang approaches his house, he offers his daughter. And there also I looked, not consciously, but I, through tafsir literature, I look at hadith and so on, around what happened, you know. I mean, and if he's a prophet of God making an offer of his daughter 
gifts to a bunch of approaching rapists or, you know. Um, so I have made use of hadith, okay? But the larger point I think that I wanted to illustrate was not so much the value of hadith in Azbab and Nuzul, but the phenomenon of a text that speaks inside history. So that was my larger question, larger point to prove. But you are raising a question for me about, um, so if you're going to be using Asbab and Nuzul, what about a critique of the of the nature of hadith and the many many kind of uh, lots of awkwardnesses in the content of hadith? How do you then uh, negotiate uh, that? I am working on uh, with uh, two three of my students on some aspects uh, of hadith, and this is one dimension of it. But the truth is, it is just a much bigger elephant to kind of uh, to to chew um, than say, uh, well, I don't know, but uh, at a superficial level. I mean, if you look at, say, the hadith and gender, although some people have, I mean, there is a book on hadith and uh, gender equality, relooking all of those awkward hadiths. So there, there is that kind of a project. But I think that hadith remains, you know, one of those more difficult challenges. And this is why most people who write on, say, uh, gender justice, they prefer to not go to hadith and the Quran and this and the Quran and that. Yeah. I don't have any definite answers. Okay. okay. Yeah. No, thank you so much. I, I really... It's a pleasure, buddy. It's yeah. really, really pleasure okay okay take care same uh, for me enjoy the rest of ramadan okay yeah good night <laughs> 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 <laughs>